welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. What do the corset, Oscar Wilde's portrait, and Mike Tyson's tattoo have in common? They were all subjects of intellectual property lawsuits. The history of intellectual property reflects the history of law, sociology, science, technology, media, and even horticulture. Joining us to talk about new book, A History of Intellectual Property in 50 Objects, is Dr. Claudie Optenkamp, a senior lecturer in film at the Center for Intellectual Property Policy and Management at Bournemouth University. So, Claudie, why did you choose these 50 objects in particular to represent the history of IP? Right. Great question, June. Hi. Um, well, as editors, we we commission chapters to to the authors that you know we approach for their specific expertise and so sometimes we propose the objects at other times it, it was them but we needed all of these objects to demonstrate uh, a few things so highlight the actual object talk about the object's ip story and then more importantly, perhaps, show its larger societal story and, and why that uh, possibly still matters today. And so certain objects were, were clear from the very beginning, right? So the, the light bulb, the Barbie doll, the Lego block, they're just such great everyday objects that have interesting IP stories with, with lingering meaning. But we also had... Uh, categories that were clear from the beginning. So we knew we wanted to have objects that had to do with the relationship between music and intellectual property, for instance. And we ended up expressing um, that through the the player piano roll, the audio tape cassette, and the CD. Uh, We also have other categories, such as women's history or luxury items. Um, I, I'd say that overall it was this large puzzle for a long time in which we didn't only try to balance the objects w- with their contributors, but also with a certain geographical diversity and, and, for instance, also a more or less fair representation of the different uh, IP regimes. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Um, this story could also be told through 50 other objects, and that's one of the main reasons why we have called this book uh, a history and not the history of okay. IP. Let's discuss a few of the objects. Sure. Let's start with Oscar Wilde portrait number 18, a case that made its way to the Supreme Court. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about that. So um, I, I think that a lot of people might actually be familiar with this portrait, but they might not realize that there is an IP um, story connected to it. Uh, so this image was part of a series, and it was taken by um, a photographer um, in, in New York, uh, Napoleon Cerrone, in, in 1882. Um, and the pictures were distributed uh, as trade cards before Oscar Wilde would arrive in the U.S. Um, when he would do a, a lecture tour. But then the Burr-Giles uh, Lithographic Company used one of these pictures, this number 18, for a hat advertisement. And and the funny detail, I think, here, uh, of course, is that Wilde isn't even wearing a hat in, in any of these images. So we can start to see the larger sort of celebrity cultists um, that we're very familiar with uh, today. Cerrone then filed a copyright infringement case against this company, and the case, as you said, went all the way to the Supreme Court, 
where it was decided to extend copyright protection to photography, which which wasn't the case before. And this was, of course, a landmark decision as uh, a, a photograph became sort of the same as a, as a novel. So going forward, about 120 years, we have Mike Tyson's yeah. facial tattoo. An exact mm-hmm. copy of it was used on the face of actor Ed Helms in Hangover 2. And, exactly. And actually, Tyson's tattoo artist had copied it from the Maori people of New England. This is just fascinating. Right. It's, it's really interesting that you've picked up on this specific entry because this has been happening quite a bit since, since the book um, uh, has come out. So it's really interesting. Um, this is, of course, a very unique uh, object, but it's, it's also one of the entries in the book that, that sort of questions what an object even is in the context of what we've tried to do. Um, so, so a little bit of backstory perhaps here. The book has somewhat of a, an Australian origin, and we wanted it to reflect that. So uh, uh, 10 contributors or so um, um, you know, are part of Swinburne uh, University, where uh, my co-editor, Dan Hunter, is um, the dean of the law school. But the theme of Down Under is also reflected in the objects, right? So we have the Wi-Fi router, the polymer banknote, the Qantas sky badge, which are all Australian but we also wanted this this theme of traditional knowledge in the book, and that's where the chapter on, on Mike Tyson's tattoo comes in, because it specifically speaks to that topic of cultural appropriation. So Tyson's tattoo artist, he sued Warner Brothers for using uh, that tattoo in the film The Hangover 2, which then started this incredibly interesting and, and sort of intertwined story of claims of ownership that involved tattoo artists in New Zealand, uh, but also in the Pacific Northwest region, because they all debated whether this particular tattoo was actually Maori or, or tribal. But The Hangover, as a franchise, of course, is one of the highest grossing R-rated comedies ever made, so this was potentially worth a lot of money. And Warner almost uh, digitally removed the tattoo from every frame of the film before um, it would be released on, on home video. Um, but eventually uh, the case got settled um, out of court. Now, um, just a few minutes here, but an interesting object Mm -hmm. is also the iconic Chanel 2.55, is that how you say it, handbag? Because, as you say, Coco Chanel wasn't so concerned about knockoffs, but Chanel today certainly is. Absolutely. The purse, the 255, which is named that way, by the way, for um, its release date of February 1955, is, is both this highly coveted luxury item, but simultaneously one of the most copied ones. And this sort of interestingly reflects the history of, of the company. So she herself, Coco Chanel, released uh, sketches of her works ahead of shows, and she wanted people who couldn't afford her items to, to actually buy imitations, which she saw as the highest form of flattery. So as long as they thought of Chanel, she, she was happy. But of course, the, the current house of Chanel tries to do everything they can uh, to stop the proliferation of, of counterfeit goods, right? Um, and I promised myself if, if the book does really well, um, I've decided I, I will get myself a real one as a, as a present. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What do they run nowadays? It depends on it depends on the material that you're buying, but I would say like 
maybe five, six thousand dollars. Well, you have some really fascinating pictures in the book, and also there are pictures of Bridget Bardot with this, and all the different historical yeah. figures as well as celebrities that have that have uh, had that bag. I would like one too, but Absolutely. I don't think it's coming my way. Yeah. Thank you so much, Cloudy. It's a fascinating book. It's called the A History of Intellectual Property in Fifty Objects. That was Cloudy Optenkamp, senior lecturer in film at the Center for Intellectual Property Policy and Management at Bournemouth University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.